Hi, welcome to Sam Lives Here, a podcast for parents who have lost a son or daughter to addiction. I'm Angie, and I recently lost my 23-year-old son, Sam. Too many parents like us are suffering alone. It's time to get real about losing our kids this way and to share our stories openly and without shame. I'm here to talk about the experience, trauma, and guilt we are left with when our kids die this way, but most importantly, to find insight and healing along the way. We can't bring our kids back, but I believe that we can and should become stronger now because it's the only choice we have. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Sam Was Here. This is episode number three. Thank you for stopping by. If you've lost a son or a daughter or anybody that you love to addiction, I'm so sorry And I hope you'll find some comfort here in this podcast. Today, I'm going to cover four topics. First of all, I'll talk a little bit about the way Sam changed through his addiction. And some of you are going to be able to relate to this. Others whose kids had a shorter span of addiction, maybe not so much. We're all going to be on a spectrum there. The second, I'll talk about managing our expectations of others. Third, I'll talk about boundaries and how to create them and why they are so important right now. And fourth, I'll talk a little bit about what my life looks like here at seven months. It has been a bit of a gap between my second and third podcast, and there's a reason for that, which I'll discover or discover. I'll discuss um, a little bit later in the podcast. And as always, I'm going to leave you with three steps towards moving forward that can make you feel better right now and the weekly limerick. And before we get started, I just want to remind you and let you know that I am not a doctor, I'm not a psychologist or a counselor. I'm a grieving mom and a communicator and a blogger, a writer, a talker, and this is a way that I can process. And so if you need counseling, if you need professional help, please seek that outside. And I hope that you can get something that you can find useful here. So moving on to topic number one, how Sam changed in his life. When Sam was a little kid, he was super curious and wise and creative. He loved to dig in the dirt and play um, outside all the time. As he got a little bit older, he liked to hunt. He was always creating contraptions and developing new things. And it was always fun for his little sister and brother because he would create things for them and with them. And he also was a little bit naughty because he would try to, you know, get them into trouble. He liked to read survival books. He was fascinated with the Titanic and situations like that. And as he got older, he, as he got into his teen years, he was a really compliant son. He didn't give me the typical eye roll that the younger ones did. He sort of did what I asked. And I later found out that It was a little bit of a sneaky way to get a buy with using the drugs he wanted and to start into his drug experience without me really noticing. Because what my experience had been in the past was that from my knowledge that people who were using drugs pretty much got to be difficult and non-communicative. And so I just didn't expect that this was the path. And when Sam got into rehab when he was 15, we took a lot of long car drives to go back and forth to rehab. And I really got to know a little bit, him a little bit deeper. And it turned out that he was a real deep thinker. He questioned a lot of things. If it didn't make sense, he was always going to question it. 
And I couldn't really relate to that because I try to do that now. I try to question more, but I've always kind of been, if, if it's out there as information, then I don't really question it as much. But he sort of provoked that in me. He was honest. He never pretended to like somebody he didn't, to like something he didn't. He was kind, but he was honest. And as he got deeper into his drug addiction, which was um, after he started rehab, of course, he got really paranoid, especially the last year when he really started to do a lot of meth. He really got paranoid. He got judgmental of other people, which was a quality he hated in other people. Just a different human being. He actually even physically changed. I don't know if I said that in a different podcast, but I felt like his cheekbones were more defined and it just felt a little bit different from just basic weight loss. It just, he was just changing. It got so bad that at the, towards the end, he, sometimes you'd be in a conversation with him and he would be kind of pitching back and forth, or if he's sitting down side to side, his eyes would roll back in his head. You never really knew what was going on, what he was doing. And then other times he would seem really normal, but the bad times were really, really bad. And at the end, I wanted a miracle so bad because I just could not see how this was going to pan out. And it was really difficult to watch. And what I learned was it was impossible for me to solve. And Sam just really never had the wherewithal or the drive to solve it. Dr. Phil has a quote that I really, really like. He says, the best predictor of future behavior is past behavior. And if you think about that, you think about how hard change is, even to just get yourself out the door and walk a mile or something like that. Any new habit, any new change is difficult. And when you think about the idea of changing you feel like if you're in the middle of the flu, for example, and you feel horrible and apparently withdrawal from opioids feels so much worse than the flu, but just imagine that somebody could give you one pill, one shot, and instantly it would be over. And my thought has always been, why the hell would you ever want to go through that more than once? But a lot of them do it, right? So they are really fighting the odds. Sam was really, really fighting the odds at the end. And it, I, I am sure that some of you can resonate with that. You just feel like they're out in the middle of the lake drowning and you're throwing them all these life rafts and they're just ignoring them. But they look desperate. They want help. They want to be different, but they just won't grab the life raft. And that is such a difficult time. It's a difficult thing to watch as they become somebody different. And it's something that a lot of people on the outside don't understand. And a lot of people maybe only know our kid as they were as an addict. And that's hard too, because we just remember every single little thing about them when they didn't even know about drugs when they were a baby. And so it's just super hard to watch that. Now we're going to move on to our second topic, which is managing our expectations of others during this time. So this is a really tough one, or it's really been hard for me because what happens when you lose a kid is that every single thing in your life changes. But what also happens is that not everything in everybody else's life changes. So we get these um, 
off, off expectations of others. And it's sort of important to manage those so that, you know, we can feel comfortable and understand that it's not personal. So we may have these expectations and it might be even subconsciously. If you feel yourself getting a little resentful or uncomfortable, it might even be subconsciously. So some of these you may relate to. Uh, we may expect that others to be just as affected as we are. But like I just said, the person, the people who are most affected by a kid's death are the parents, the immediate family. We may expect others to know what we need. I don't know about you, but I need one thing, one hour, something completely different the next hour. I'm up and down. I'm all around. I don't know what I'm going to need. So it's a little bit of a lot, a big expectation to think that others are going to know what we need. We might expect others to change who we are or who they are rather. And this is a really interesting one to me because I had this expectation that certain people were going to do certain things. But when I didn't get those, those expectations met, I had to sit back and think about it a lot. And I realized that the people that I expected maybe to visit me or call me every day or text me every day or become, you know, just more, uh, you know, a, a person in my life that's just around more, they really didn't, but they weren't that way in the first place. And the people that I could always count on that were, you know, were always, always there generally have been. And the thing that I realized is that you just can't, you can't pick who heals you, they pick you. And we might feel let down because other people's lives feel so normal. They have, the bedrooms are all still full with people in them, or they can still text somebody and get a response. But we have to remember that our lives felt normal too, but they probably haven't felt normal for a really long time as we've been dealing with the addiction. In my case, it was eight years. So we have to sort of respect that before the addiction made its way into our family and caused such tragedy, our lives were normal too. And so, you know, life is cyclical. We all go through our tragedies. This is our time. Another thing we might think is that people just have some kind of a deeper understanding or knowing of the pain and turbulence that we're going through. And if you think about it, did you ever know pain to know what we need? Blah, blah, blah. The list goes on forever. So what we have to do here, what our responsibility is, is to set boundaries. Boundaries are really really scary for some people, especially for certain people who always want people around them to feel comfortable. But recognize, as I just talked about, losing a kid is a big, big deal. And nobody, most of your people haven't lost a kid. And so it is up to you to protect yourself. It's up to you to protect your healing by setting boundaries. And one of the reasons that boundaries are so hard, yes, is because we don't want to make people feel uncomfortable. So what do we tend to do when we set a boundary or kind of set a boundary and we notice that it makes the other person uncomfortable? I think of it as closing the gap. What we tend to do is walk towards that other person that's uncomfortable, right? We try to compromise. Some of us, a lot of us, most human nature is to make other people feel uncomfortable. 
And what we're not thinking about is we're walking through fire, through hot coals, over tacks, over nails, because we're in so much pain to compromise for somebody who can't relate to our pain. That doesn't make sense. We don't have that kind of energy at this time in our life. So I suggest that we leave that gap wide open and create boundaries around ourselves and put ourselves in our own focus. So there are so many great reasons to establish boundaries. And here they are. The reasons are that they can prevent resentments. If you create your own boundaries, then how other people behave matters a lot less. Hence, you're not going to have those resentments. When uh, you set boundaries, you are establishing, oh, it helps us to be less judgmental. I'm reading off a little list here because I wanted to make sure I wasn't going to miss any of the ones I was thinking about, although I'm sure there are a lot more benefits that I don't have stated here. But you become less judgmental of others because you're creating boundaries. Again, you're putting the responsibility on your healing of others. So resentment, judgment, that's a little bit of the same thing. But I think in resentment, you're, you're mad at someone because you have these expectations of what they should be doing for you. And when you're judging, you're simply judging somebody else's behavior. So boundaries helps both of those. Boundaries help keep us focused on what is important now, which is healing. So I talk about this a lot, but we are, have a limited amount of energy. Healing from a trauma that we are takes an extraordinary, extraordinary amount of energy. So when we keep our boundaries, when we support ourselves, then we're able to use our energy towards ourselves and towards our healing. And it's really an important time to do that because if you, if we don't focus on us right now, we're not going to be able to move forward properly. We're not going to be able to heal. And loose boundaries certainly drain our energies. So boundaries help to prevent us um, in another way because we just don't spread ourselves too thin. When we recognize we have to take care of ourselves, we don't go to things, go to events that we, um, we don't feel compelled to attend to things like that because we know that our healing comes first. So we have to remember boundaries are never, ever, ever to push other people away, or they shouldn't be. If we're using them for that, then we're kind of using them for the wrong reason. Boundaries are to keep yourself safe or to keep that little circle around you. And we are, I don't know, I can't call you guys fragile because that wouldn't be appropriate. Parts of me are so fragile right now that if I don't work to take care of myself, I can really, really feel it in every avenue of my bound or of my life. So I have a list of boundaries that I think are really important. You're welcome to take from this list, but I want to tell you, whatever your boundaries are, be courageous. You are walking through your kid's death. Why the hell would you ever be concerned about what somebody else thinks about you taking care of yourself in the way that you need to? People that will judge you or leave you for that are not people that that you should have in your life. At least I don't think so. So here's my little list. Do not feel compelled to respond to texts, email, phone calls that aren't an emergency or aren't your kid or something like that, right? We get bombarded with additional texts, emails, phone calls every single day. 
And some of us feel a little bit more compelled, like we have to pick up every single one or we're not, or or respond to every single one or we're rude. And I just don't believe that. Again, you're going through number one trauma in almost everybody's mind. We don't need to respond to things that we don't need to respond to. So don't feel guilty for that. It's been seven months. I have not written a thank you card to the people that traveled miles and miles and the people that um, gave to the foundation that we were um, gifting, gifting to, that we're connected with. And I haven't even written a thank you. And some of you might think that's weird, but I come from Minnesota family and thank yous are so big that we always write thank yous. And I have this big bag full of cards and letters. And I truly want to thank those people because I appreciate them so much, but I just don't have the energy. And that's okay. That is okay. Never try to justify, convince, explain, distort the truth or anything about your kid to anyone. Not about your kid, their addiction, your behavior through the addiction, your feelings, behavior through the death, none of that. Anybody that you have to explain or distort the truth to or convince or feel like you have to just try to, yeah, get them on your side, get them to understand, uh uh-uh, that takes too much energy. Again, you don't need to have those people in your life, at least not right now. Three, the third thing is, and I don't think I've been numbering these, but this is the third, it's okay to cancel plans whenever you need to. Exhaustion and overwhelm can come on so suddenly. And sometimes when it happens, you just feel like you can't move. And again, the people who love you and support you are going to understand and don't take it upon yourself to feel like you have to go because you're obligated. You shouldn't be obligating yourself at this point, if you're, especially if you're newer into your grief, you should not be obligating yourself to anything that if you cannot make it, it's a major destruction, maybe except for work. Um, or, you know, being there for your family, but you shouldn't be putting yourself into those obligations in the first place. So feel free to cancel plans. Uh, fourth, do not ever give up your self-care routine. We can get pulled in a million directions. Everybody's busy. It's tempting to want to go to that party and stay till one o'clock in the morning and maybe drink too much. It's tempting to want to go eat those snacks or to, you know, not get your exercise, whatever it is. It's just tempting not to take care of yourself. And we tend to do it. One of the biggest reasons is because we don't want to disappoint anyone else. I'm going to turn it back on the energy thing. We do not have the capacity to worry about disappointing other people. That's not your job right now. That's not any of our job. Uh, Fifth, don't make big decisions. That's kind of a big one. They say you should go at least one year. I don't know who they is, but they say you should go at least one year before making a huge decision. And I feel this because I almost made a pretty big decision and then I backed out of it and I feel so much relief for not having followed through with it. So I kind of learned if I would have made that decision, I think I would have had anxiety. So try not to make big decisions don't uh, number six, try not to go out and spend money on anything but necessities. When we're in this kind of trauma, this kind of grief, our mind can go hogwire on the things we might need. 
we might even feel that just like some of us feel like alcohol and drugs and food make us feel better. Some of us feel like shopping makes us feel better. But I don't know about you, but shopping doesn't make me feel better um, when I get things that I don't need. And at this time, it would be really, really bad because it would just add on more stress. But if we, especially if we're using credit cards and we're watching those build up because we're trying to make ourselves feel better by buying stuff, that's just something to look at because that's just going to add to your stress. And I think I already said this up above, but just understand that the people who help us heal, they choose us. We don't choose them. And so those are the really, um, those are ways to, I guess the seven was not really a boundary, but I guess it's an understanding when we create boundaries that we're not expecting everybody in our life to fulfill every need, even though we feel like we're drowning and we feel like we have so many people we're looking at that we want them to throw us a life jacket. But very few of them actually have the capacity to do that. And we need to give them a lot of grace because we did not expect to feel what we feel right now. We never expected to lose a kid. We never expected to feel this kind of pain. And we're just walking through it. And we understand right away that the only people that really understand us are other parents that are going through it. So before we move on to our last point, uh, what we've talked about so far is just how much I told you how much Sam changed, and I'm sure a lot of you can relate to that. We end up losing somebody that's almost unrecognizable for what they were. And also that it's so important that we manage our expectations of each, of each other and of, of others, really. We have to understand that this kind of grief is, it just knocks you right on your ass, and we can't expect other people to understand it. And then in saying that, we have to, because they don't understand, we have to be willing and courageous enough to create boundaries around ourselves to keep ourselves safe and to keep ourselves on the healing path and to keep ourselves using energy in the places that we need it. So my last topic that I'd like to end with is how life changes through the grief process. So right now I'm just a little bit over seven months and I did take a long time between taping because I had a setback and I realized that when we're going through this kind of grief, I sort of had the expectation that everything in my el else in my life is kind of going to be okay because, you know, this is too big. I can hardly handle it. So then when I was metaphorically punched in the gut about a month ago, I, it really set me back and it also intensified my grief towards losing Sam. And I think that that's because I didn't have the energy to deal with it all. I had a hard time. I was sleeping, you know, maybe all the time, taking naps all day. But yeah, just a lot of really kind of having to look at life and set my priorities again. Biggest priority is to walk forward, to find joy, to live in joy, and to support my grief. Another thing that happened was that I ran into another woman who is a, was a, somebody I've taught yoga to, and she lost her husband at about the same time that I lost Sam. And we did a lot of talking and we have decided to get together more to support each other because we have recognized that there's so many people in our lives that don't really understand and that, that we can't expect them to. 
so the other thing, I feel like I'm now growing forward, but I also experience the feeling like every single day I have to remind myself that Sam is gone. And a lot of times, you know, the last time he walked in to my house, he walked through a back gate. He always walked through my back gate. So sometimes I look at my back gate and I just wish that he could walk through it again. So it's almost as if you start with shock and it just is so fucking hard. But then as time goes on, you you move into reality. Excuse me, I, I knew I was going to have these moments. But you move into reality and it's so much worse. And that's sort of this process that parents go through. You know, we have the shock and then we move into the reality. You know, they're just not coming back. They're just not coming back. And that's just the suckiest, suckiest thing ever. But we can't change that. So I feel myself, after going through this last big setback, I find myself really looking for more positivity in my life. And I find myself starting to take more positive information in than I was for a while because it really does matter. The people you are with, the information that you take in from podcasts or TV or whatever it is, is really important. So before I close out, I always like to remind you of three things that you can do right now to make your life feel better. And I actually have a little bit to add on to that today, which is kind of cool. So my first advice is do something that makes you feel better. Whatever it is, we tend to forget the things that at least used to make us feel better. And the more that we start to participate in those activities again, that's going to provide healing. The second thing is do something that makes your life better. By that, I mean, do you need to clean something? Do you need to pay something? Do you need to run an errand? Something that gets that little, makes you a little bit lighter because it's not sitting on your shoulders. And I'm going to stop right there and tell you what I learned this week about those two things. Because as I said, I'm going through this major setback and I knew intellectually, okay, I know what to do to make myself feel better, but I cannot do it. So I really had that dilemma going on and it was very, very difficult because I've always been an exerciser. I'm a yogi. I know the things that are going to make me feel better. And yet I was stuck in the cement. So I looked up Mel Robbins, um, or I looked up one of her podcasts and she's talking about the five second rule. And it was basically how, when you think of something, you have five seconds to act and that's your most powerful time to get that thing done. Because after five seconds, you lose momentum, you lose focus, you can get distracted, you could talk yourself out of it. So she suggests five, four, three, two, one, you know, walk your dog. Five, four, three, two, one, go on a run. Really counting down and then basically forcing yourself to do it. And this rule, quote, rule, unquote, has really benefited my life in the past few days. And so I really recommend that you think about that 
as you're trying to get yourself to do something that makes you feel better and makes your life better. Five, four, three, two, one, do it. And the last thing that I really like to talk about um, in these three points is the importance of connection with others. I really recommend that every single day you connect with at least one person who both understands and supports you in your journey. And what this is going to do is help you to grow stronger, and then you can turn around and support another person when they need you. So here's the limerick for today, and then we'll close out. As he sat on his bed, he said, each time I could end up dead. He gambled away, he shot up night and day, and suddenly his foresight had cred. Thank you so much for stopping in. I'll see you next Tuesday. Have a wonderful day.